From Interfaith Alliance, this is State of Belief Radio. I'm Reverend Paul Rauschenbusch, President of Interfaith Alliance, broadcasting this week from New York City. One of my great-grandfathers was Louis Brandeis, the Supreme Court Justice, who was also known as the People's Attorney. A core belief of his was that states are the laboratories of democracy. His daughter, my grandmother, Elizabeth Brandeis, moved out to Wisconsin from D.C. in the 1920s, where at the University of Wisconsin, she met my grandfather, Paul Rauschenbusch, the son of Walter Rauschenbusch. Together, they crafted the first unemployment compensation bill for Wisconsin that became the grounding for the National Unemployment Compensation Bill for the entire nation. They stayed in Wisconsin all their lives, believing that the most important work is done at the state and local level. Today, we are seeing how true that can be. At the state level, we are seeing how an inclusive religious liberty is being restricted. At state level, in cities and on school boards. We're seeing it through abortion bans, increased prayer in school, bans on books, and bathroom bans on transgender people. At the state level, we are also witnessing an attack on democracy through intentionally restricting voting access, often in ways that directly and by intention target black American voters. While national politics plays a role, often the most important work happens at a very local level. Our main offices are on the Hill in Washington, D.C., but often the most urgent and critical efforts are in very context-specific collaboration with our Interfaith Alliance affiliate organizations that are located in states and communities across the country. As the midterms come closer and the future of our nation is at stake, today we will be hearing from leaders and activists heading up three Interfaith Alliance affiliate groups who will give us a first-hand report of what is happening across the country. Connie Ryan will report in from Iowa, Motion Paul Neyman in New York State, and Rabbi Carl Choper in Pennsylvania. But first, I will be speaking with my colleague, Interfaith Alliance Director of Field and Organizing, Maureen O'Leary. You can hear State of Belief on the radio and get the podcast on iTunes and all the other podcast platforms. Every week, I will be in conversation with some of the most fascinating and impactful civil and religious leaders across the country. You won't want to miss it. So please subscribe today. State of Belief Radio is made possible in great part by the generous support of our listeners. If you've made a donation, I really want to thank you. If you haven't pitched in yet, information on how you can help keep this show on the air is available at stateofbelief.com. And you can find out more about the work of Interfaith Alliance and join that work at interfaithalliance.org. And now to my first guest. Maureen O'Leary is the Dynamic Director of Field and Organizing at Interfaith Alliance, a crucial link between the Washington office and the many local affiliates doing essential work across the country. With the need for affiliate-level advocacy more urgent than ever, I wanted to start out this week's show with a conversation highlighting our affiliate program, as well as the opportunities for additional groups to join the Interfaith Alliance family. Maureen, welcome back to State of Belief Radio. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So let's start at the beginning with how many affiliates do we have for Interfaith Alliance? And you know what's the oldest one and, and what's the latest one? 
We have um, 13 active affiliates across the country. Our oldest one is the Interfaith Alliance of Iowa, who started not long after the national office was established. So they have a wealth of experience um, that we pull from at the national office and that we're really happy um, to be in partnership with in their local advocacy. Most recently, we added the Interfaith Alliance of North Dakota. Uh, they joined us earlier woo! this year. Yeah, woo! <laughs> <laughs> uh, Ross Keys, um, uh, incredible activist um, in that state, has been going on a road trip, generating support, meeting with faith leaders, and fighting the good fight. Um, since the beginning of this year. And it has been very exciting to um, add him to our affiliate family. I think this is so important. I, honestly, when I was considering uh, applying for this job with Interfaith Alliance as president, the affiliates were one of the most attractive parts to me, that that this was not some sort of organization that was working at an abstract level in Washington, D.C., not that our work is abstract in any way, but that we're influenced and informed by what's happening on the ground in affiliates across the country. And one of the most interesting things about our affiliates is that they are they are not all in blue states. And as we know, all blue states are not like filled with all blue people. You know, these are people who are working right in the middle of the, the actual conversation that America is having about the role of religion in society, the way it can be productive and also the way it can be detrimental. So I can imagine what's happening in North Dakota and Iowa is really instructive into the broader uh, national conversation. It is, I cannot overstate um, how incredibly difficult, but also incredibly rewarding it is to be taking on this work in states where the religious right and Christian nationalism is a clear, present, active threat to folks um, within their sites um, on the local and state level. Yeah. You know, it, it's wonderful and inspiring. And I, I we're going to hear from them shortly. I wonder if you could just highlight maybe one or two initiatives that you're like, oh, man, that is so smart. Way to go. You know, like what have what have you been super impressed with lately? Our Wyoming affiliate um, led by Reverend Anne Marie Delgado, they're running a very exciting program. Um, it's called Voices of Faith and Leadership. What they've done is brought together small groups of really diverse spiritual voices and all across the spectrum. And over the course of nine months, they have educated them, trained them how to collaborate um, with different faith communities, how to be a better activist on the state and local level, and envisioning together and implementing a more just, welcoming, inclusive Wyoming. It's amazing. That is just, you know, Wyoming has been in the news, uh, the Representative Cheney, and, and it's so easy to just say, oh, that's Wyoming. And yet when you get into the local level, there's amazing people doing incredible work. And it, we just, we can't forget that. And that's one of the great gifts that the affiliates are giving all of us. But it's just so important to remember. And not only are they working with folks on the grassroots level, folks that want to get involved, but they're also an expert resource for other partners, but also government agencies doing this work. The Interfaith Alliance of Colorado, for example, they have been a resource for the FBI on the local level of how to better protect vulnerable communities that are targets of hate-based violence. You know, it's going to take everybody 
to really promote an inclusive vision of religious freedom. And that's where our local and state affiliates come in. It's not just about the grass tops. It's about the grassroots all the way down. That's amazing. So let's use the case of uh, North Dakota. How did they decide to become an affiliate? Because what I really want everyone listening is to be thinking about like, there's lots of ways to be working with Interfaith Alliance. Uh, affiliate is just one of the ways. But if someone is all of a sudden thinking, oh, I want to be in relationship with Interfaith Alliance. I want to have that kind of resource. How did that happen in North Dakota? And how could you suggest to people who are listening who might want to start something in their own community what, what they should do? Ross Keys, who is now their executive director, was the point of contact that reached out to me. He says he classes himself as a hopeful agnostic, um, which is uh, another reminder that we are a network that includes people of faith, but also people um, of no faith affiliation that want to be part of this work. But in his activism, he realized the power of interfaith networks in moving towards social justice and promoting change, pushing back against policies that erode the separation between religion and government. So he reached out. He said, hey, I want to do this work. Interfaith Alliance seems like a good home for what I'm interested in. How can I get more involved? Throughout our conversations, you know, I have helped him. We've been together in building up at the Interfaith Alliance of North Dakota. And that's where the national office can be really helpful. People want to get engaged, but sometimes we don't think that it's possible. We don't feel like we're qualified. We don't feel like, you know, we as a just one person have the right. capacity to make the difference. It's not true. You know, we are here to help you if you want to get involved. Absolutely. And some of the things that we offer, I mean, I, I don't want to lead with money, but we do give out grants for great ideas that some of our affiliates have. We also offer, well, you know better than I, but things like media training, things like organizing, th you know, so we're not kind of saying, okay, now you're an affiliate, go do the work. It's actually an invitation to be in community and conversation with not only the national office, but also other affiliates. Yeah, and we gather as an entire affiliate network um, regularly to share ideas. We bring in guest speakers that can, you know, really information share on the kind of issues that these folks are facing on the ground. Again, it is possible. All it takes is making that first step. And we're here to equip you with the tools you need to go out and make the kind of change that is so important at this time on the state and local level. I love it. And also just to recognize again that you don't have to be like the most pious kid on the block to do this work. Interfaith Alliance really does include people of faith and no faith. What we are trying to do is recognize the importance of faith in the broader community and the power to mobilize people and also to recognize that there are some who would want to impose a faith tradition on everybody else. And it will require all of us. And I'm, if you didn't catch it, that was Christian nationalism right there. It's like people trying to, to impose a morality or a doctrine on the rest of us. It's going to take all of us to push back this threat to America and to American democracy. So I think that's just great. 
Before I ask you exactly how people can get in touch with you, I want to bring up your latest trip to an affiliate, which uh, I I did not know was an option, and I am planning it already for me. But we have an Interfaith Alliance Hawaii. And so tell me what you saw there. I assume it was not all surfing for you, uh, but tell us about Interfaith Alliance Hawaii and some of what you saw just being on the ground with them. Yeah, I, uh, Paul Gracie, the president of the affiliate, he kept me very busy, which I was appreciative of. I'm a former um, Oahu resident, so it was really nice also to be back in my old stomping grounds. But Hawaii has just a really amazing, rich cultural and religious diversity that really is not reflected in a lot of places on the mainland. The issues that affect them, just as, you know, every other state has their really uh, unique local needs and issues, you know, getting on the ground with Paul, being able to see what is affecting their community and how different faith traditions, especially in a state that has such a wealth of diversity, are coming together to do this work. Sometimes it's not easy to get a bunch of people that come from different backgrounds to come together, but That's the really unique role the Interfaith Alliance affiliates can play. They can be that convening place for people that want to do this work. It's absolutely imperative that people understand what's happening in Hawaii can be understood by people outside, but it really is the Hawaiian experience. And it's really important. Like what happens in Iowa is what's happening in Iowa. And that's the reason like we have a national office, but these affiliates are really important. And the, the local traditions, the original traditions of Hawaii are, are in play. And I know that that's true in, in other states as well. Like, how, how do we interact actively with the First Peoples, the Native peoples in those communities? Is It's so exciting to hear about the work out there. We're going to hear more in just a minute. But thank you so much for being with me. And the last thing, what's the first step that people should take if they're interested in becoming a, an affiliate or learning how to start that process? The thing that I would suggest is to email me. I love talking to people that are interested in this work. You know, I just really excited. I mean, that's why I do this, right? It really excites me to empower people that want to get involved to be able to do something. So my email um, is M O'Leary, that's M O L E A R Y at interfaithalliance.org. Reach out to me. I will always make time to speak to someone that is making things happen on a local level or wants to. You can also visit our website under Get Involved, um, and that will also help lay out for you some of the steps in becoming an affiliate. Maureen O'Leary is the director of field and organizing at Interfaith Alliance a critical link between the organization's national office and the state-level affiliates that are addressing some of the most pressing issues we face today. So thank you so much, Maureen, for being with us today. For sure. Thanks for having me. We're just getting started with this look at state and local organizing at Interfaith Alliance affiliates across the country. Up next, I'll welcome the leaders of three of those affiliates to the conversation. You're listening to State of Belief Radio, brought to you by Interfaith Alliance. Connie Ryan is the longtime executive director of Interfaith Alliance Iowa. Reverend Paul Naiman serves as president of Interfaith Alliance of Upstate New York. 
and Rabbi Carl Choper is president of Interfaith Alliance of Pennsylvania. Each region of the country is facing its unique challenges headed into the midterm elections, and sharing of strategies and resources is an essential part of taking on those challenges. That's why I'm so excited to have a chance to explore both the challenges and the solutions with these effective, experienced leaders. Welcome, everybody, to State of Belief Radio. Glad to be here. Thank you, Paul. Very glad to be here. Rabbi Carl, tell us a little bit about what's going on in Pennsylvania from your vantage point as a head of Interfaith Alliance in Pennsylvania, as well as a, a rabbi. Yeah, well, we we have uh, actually two very, very important elections, one for governor, one for Senate. And the, the governor's race is um, candidate Mastriano, who is really a Christian nationalist, and um, his his campaign is rooted in the churches. He has biblical verses on his campaign signs, and it's really rather upsetting because the Republican legislature is likely to want to do what he would want to do. He is a proud Christian nationalist, and I think for people, as a Christian myself, I find him threatening and uh, dangerous. I think for people who are of other traditions— it feels existential. And, uh, you know, uh, when he first announced for his candidacy, I read about it in the Jerusalem Post because the Jerusalem Post covered the fact that they were wearing a talus and blowing a shofar. And they were saying, what is happening in the politics in Pennsylvania? Yeah. And the fact that his, uh, his opponent is Jewish, it feels to me like one of the most overt challenges that Christian nationalism is posing to the country. And, I'm curious, just for you, um, Connie, how, how you're seeing Christian nationalism show up in Iowa. You know, I think Pennsylvania feels like an extreme example, but I actually don't think it's outside of the norm right now, unfortunately, the way people are bringing faith into this election. Yeah, so thank you for having us on, Paul. We appreciate being able to have the conversation. Um, Christian nationalism in Iowa looks a lot like what you see across the, the country and um, whether it's in our legislature and the legislation that we're seeing introduced um, occasionally passed. But even if it is just introduced, it is bringing different issues um, that are driven by Christian nationalists into the public conversation. And that does nearly as much harm um, by just normalizing some of those issues and um, bringing them into the public square, so to speak. So what issues do you think Christian nationalism is really bringing to the fore? In Iowa, it is several things. There are issues around race and racism that we have seen in multiple pieces of legislation and some of that is the narrative around critical race theory, which is not really a thing. We all know that critical race theory is not taught in public schools at the K-12 level, but um, having conversations around race and racism is important in a lot of different contexts in our schools. So there's that issue. It is reproductive freedom and attacks on the ability to access abortion and other reproductive health care um, things that, that folks need. 
Um, it is attacks on our public schools and, and public education in general and, and demonizing folks in public education and its attacks on civil rights of various groups, sexual orientation, gender identity, religion, um, just a variety of things. So we've seen that in legislation. We also see that in the conversation with um, candidates for public office in the midterms at, at all levels. Um, we have a contentious um, congressional race in um, three of our four districts, as well as a Senate race um, with Senator Grassley, who has served for 62 years. Wow. Um, but a really, yeah, um, literally longer than I've been alive. And a candidate, a, a, an admiral, retired admiral from the Navy, who is um, bringing some really important issues to the table as well. But we're seeing that there. We're seeing it certainly in the governor's race um, and attacks by our sitting governor on the person who is running from the Democratic Party and a lot of racism um, that we're seeing in ads because it's the first Black woman to um, run um, as a, a serious candidate. It sounds pervasive, unfortunately. You know, that, uh, Paul, I'm wondering what you're seeing uh, in upstate New York and wondering specifically how you are... Um, as not a Christian and as a Buddhist leader, how does what we're seeing as far as Christian nationalism land with you and your community? And, and what are ways that you're specifically talking about it using the language of your own tradition? Well, it, it's interesting that in our area, we, we had a special election uh, back in August for Congress because our, our previous congressperson, Antonio Delgado, became lieutenant governor. And so there was a special election to uh, bring in a new and, and against a, a candidate named uh, Molinari. And um, Pat Ryan won, won that. They were both county executives in different counties. Um, but then they redrew the district. And so now the new election will be not with uh, Pat, but with someone named uh, Josh Riley. And the, the, the point is that here, in upstate New York, it's a kind of demographic you see across the United States. In the Albany, Schenectady, Troy area, part of the Capital District, we're part of that larger area. Specifically, that's where the Upstate Alliance is located here. It tends to be fairly progressive, fairly liberal. Just north of there, Elise Stefanik is the representative. And south of us, where actually our temple is located, it's a toss-up. I mean, it's really 50-50. It runs between uh, progressive and very conservative. The sheriff who was uh, not reelected this last time was an avowed oath keeper, had Stewart stay in his house. He wasn't not reelected for that reason. There were some internal things that were going on that was really the cause of it, but it gives you an idea. Recently, there have been uh, pamphlets, uh, baggies with pamphlets and beans, just to weight down the, the baggies, thrown on people's lawn in Chatham, which is our, our closest little village near us, with incredible anti-Semitic and racist uh, blurbs put out by uh, a white people matter party or whatever they call it. And so the Oath Keepers, the Three Percenters, these folks have been putting up posters and stickers, et cetera, so much so that the a separate uh, clergy association from where our temple is located, we recently had a meeting with the new sheriff and his, the associate sheriff 
about how can we work to uh, decrease the amount of, of animosity that's going on and how can we assist the, the police force in dealing with it. And they, the sheriff's department is very receptive. Up next, more ways Christian nationalism is showing up at the state level across this country. If you miss any part of today's program, you can hear full episodes of State of Belief anytime on our website. You'll also find links to the topics we discussed this week, extended interviews and transcripts, and an archive of past shows, all at stateofbelief.com. You're listening to State of Belief Radio, religion and radio done differently. With me are leaders of three important Interfaith Alliance affiliates, Reverend Paul Naiman in upstate New York, Connie Ryan in Iowa, and Rabbi Carl Choper in Pennsylvania. Actually, the tone of the politics of these midterms is bringing up above the surface a certain reality, unfortunately, in our country of of a Christian nationalist, which is also rooted in white supremacy, um, you know, this, this strain in our nation and strain and stain in our nation's history. And, and unfortunately, I think Connie, you said this really well, that the dialogue of our politics is actually giving strength and credence to what's happening. I just feel like we're in a very dangerous time. And I'm curious from each of you, like, what do you think is the role of the organization you're representing here today, which is the Interfaith Alliance, in pushing back against this kind of rhetoric and also the calling out when we hear it, the rhetoric of um, politicians as well as um, kind of foot soldiers who are creating an intimidating environment for people of other faith traditions, Christians who aren't the right kind of Christians, as well as people who don't ascribe to any faith. I'm curious, Carl, what um, Interfaith Alliance of Pennsylvania has been doing in response to what we're hearing as far as this rhetoric? Mostly it's about calling attention and, and networking with others. So there, there's um, organizations putting together anti-hate groups, connecting with the Pennsylvania Council of Churches and Power Interfaith, which is um, congregation-based community organizing. So the politics are really nasty. The, the Christian nationalism, since there's an element of demonization in there, it ties into that nastiness, that name-calling. You know, the demonization of anyone who opposes you it's a tactic so that anyone who opposes a kind of very specific thin slice of Christianity, but Christian white nationalist agenda is actually, then it becomes a religious thing. I think you you're, you have your finger on something there. Religious ven- vendetta. Um, yeah. I said that, that there is this verse on the Mastriano posters, which is about freedom, but it comes from the same section of the New Testament where Jews are called children of the devil and his opponent is Jewish. And I, I just don't know how much this is a dog whistle for others. His campaign is so much rooted in churches who would be familiar with these scriptures, 
well, the progressives don't don't have any idea. So so part of our role is to try to tell the progressives what these other people are saying. In some ways, what we're trying to do is lift up the religious undertones of some of what's going on in these midterms and help alerting the broader religious and non-religious community about just to be aware of it and also the threat it has to fundamental principles of democracy, which is religious diversity and the freedom to believe what you want. This is not a Christian country. This is a country made up of people of all faith traditions and no faith tradition who are working together to become a more perfect union. I just think it's really important that we recognize that fact right now. Curious, Connie, how, how you at the Interfaith Alliance in Iowa, what tactic do you see as to be the most effective in responding to some of what Carl is seeing in Pennsylvania and you're also seeing in Iowa? I think that it is empowering folks to use their voices. And so, you know, I often speak out. I'm sometimes quoted in the media. Um, I can talk with uh, elected officials and candidates for office. But at the end of the day, It is everyday Iowans in our case who need the information, need to, sometimes you have to help connect the dots of what's happening and the different players that are involved on the issues or in the rhetoric and um, help folks to understand what is happening and then empowering them to use their voices, um, whether it is talking with candidates, whether it is asking questions in candidate forums, whether it is, you know, sending them emails or, or letters to the editor, all of those pieces. Yeah. But um, we love to empower folks to use their own voices and provide them with the information and the means to do that. I think it's so important to, for people not to feel like they're alone and not to feel like they're crazy. <laughs> you know, like, uh, you know, I, I'm I'm seeing this. I'm feeling actually scared by it. Maybe I'm overreacting. Well, maybe you're not, actually. Maybe you're actually seeing things clearly uh, and that we, they need to be uh, brought to light. Paul, I'm wondering, in, in your situation, we're talking a lot about reacting to the negative. How do we cast a positive vision? How do we cast like a vision that is attractive, that is almost the antithesis of Christian nationalism, which is people of all faith traditions and no faith traditions, and even people across political spectrums can agree on basic decency? What in upstate New York have you seen as effective messaging that invites a broader group of people into community? One of the examples is something we did last month. We had a Stop the Hate uh, multi-faith stop the hate event. So we had uh, different faith traditions uh, who were coming together specifically to speak to exactly what we're discussing right now. Not only does that receive then a broad media coverage, but it also brings people together to discuss how do we view it. And I, I think you brought up one of the issues that's really important. I personally feel very vulnerable at our temple. I mean, we've had to have a drill. What happens if a shooter comes into the temple? We've had the sheriff department assist us with what program do we have in place? Because as a Buddhist temple, some of the the mosques, the synagogues, we've all banded together to promote these issues because we tend to be more vulnerable because we're more not the average organization out there. But Stop the Hate is one of the examples 
the AME Church, as well as several synagogues, as well as our temple and the Hindu community and the Muslim community, we've formed a, a coalition to respond specifically. If there's going to be a action by one of these Christian nationalist organizations, we show up not to confront, but to demonstrate that we, the coalition of people who are standing together, oppose that hate and demonstrate that the, for the folks who are there, you may think that you have the spotlight, but in fact, there's a lot more people that are here that are diverse and share a sense of purpose and a sense of community. It's so beautiful. And it's like an example of, hey, America, which would you want to be? You know, do you want to be a collection of very many diverse people coming together to show solidarity with one another? Or do you want to be a part of this very thin slice of people who are trying to dominate our politics and and actually promoting violence against uh, people different than themselves? I mean, the choice is fairly clear. So I, I, I really appreciate that example. We've been talking a lot about Christian nationalism, but that's not the only issue that you all are dealing with. I wonder if there are some other concerns of your um, the Interfaith Alliance affiliates that are on top of your priority list. So what else is really top of mind for you, especially thinking after the election? What do you want people to be really focusing on? There, there's election issues. I mean, Mastriano attended the January 6th, 2021 rally in the U.S. Capitol. And if he's elected governor, he will be appointing the secretary of state who is in charge of certifying the elections. And if the Supreme Court decides that the state courts have nothing to say, then that will further empower that possibility. And even if the Supreme Court doesn't decide that, the heavily Republican legislature is pushing to pass a constitutional amendment and get it on the ballot, which totally ignores the governor anyway. The governor can't veto that. And that constitutional measure would change the way Pennsylvania Supreme Court justices are elected so they could do it by district, which is already gerrymandered. And But it's, it's so complicated that it's difficult to get the word out to those who need to hear it and are also least likely to vote. Uh, we, we need to get more people voting. And a critical part of the mission, as I see it as president of Interfaith Alliance, is protection of democracy, which is exactly what you're talking into. It's like it is under threat in specific locations, in different states, in different local communities, as well as, you know, January 6th. What are we going to be doing to ensure there's not another January 6th? I mean, so preservation of democracy is so crucial to the work you all are doing. And so, you know, thank you, because it's really hard work. Um, Connie, what are you seeing as really, you know, top of mind for Interfaith Alliance, Iowa? We have a number of things that are in play um, this year with the midterms um, and then also moving into the legislative session in 2023. Um, on the ballot, not only are all of the elected officials, but we also have an amendment to our constitution on guns and um, inscribing into our constitution, not the Second Amendment, which 
you know, we would care less about if it were just that. But it is um, adding gun rights with strict scrutiny, which is the highest level of judicial review, which means that any common sense gun law would likely be struck down if challenged in court. And so that is of grave concern to us. And we do gun safety, gun violence prevention, because we know that gun violence disproportionately impacts marginalized communities. And so um, that is a, a huge piece of the work that we're doing currently is to defeat that. If the legislature is retained um, controlled by Republicans, as well as our governor, um, we will see likely a constitutional amendment in the next election cycle, essentially outlawing abortion in Iowa constitutionally rather than just by um, law. And so that is a piece that we will continue to work on and to help defeat, hopefully. And um, we do all of our work in coalition and um, the number of organizations that do this work in Iowa from um, civil rights groups, business groups, et cetera. And so it's really important for us to have a, a broad coalition of voices that helped inform Iowans of these issues. We will continue to see attacks on public education. We know that and, and public educators um, at the state level and at the local level. Um, we have all of the school board arguments and shouting matches that you see across the, the nation as well. And, and all of this is about our democracy. And um, do we care about our democracy? And um, do we care that um, people's rights are upheld? And, and so we fight these issues by um, the power of our organization, but also the power of the voices of Iowans who um, care equally um, about these issues. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. Paul, what about you? What feels really important to you and to your colleagues at Interfaith Alliance of Upstate New York? I, I think that it really falls into um, maybe three separate areas. And the first is the environment on the agenda. That's a really big aspect. I think among all of the faith traditions, they recognize that uh, as single voices, we, we don't have very much power. As a Buddhist voice, we represent 2% of the population. The Jewish voices represent perhaps 2% of the population. The Muslim voice is about the same, and we have to get together in a very real way to manifest any uh, effect that we might have. And so the environment is number one. I would say what uh, Connie was talking about with violence, especially gun violence, in the cities in upstate New York and Albany, Schenectady and Troy, the number of shootings was so low for so many years. And since COVID has just ballooned, it's, it's amazing. And nobody, nobody has an answer as to what we do with it. And so uh, one of the, one of the programs we had a lunch program for kids in the summer who don't get lunches in, is in the inner city who don't get lunches at school we had to abandon because of the, the threat of violence. And so violence is really one of the, the big, especially gun violence. And so supporting bills and actually then responding to the, to the courts overturning of those bills is in the case of New York state has been a really big issue. How do we rewrite those bills so that they would stand the scrutiny of conservative courts? And then I would say that, that the third thing that becomes really important is what everybody is, has been speaking about. If we don't get elected the appropriate people, 
then we're we're going to watch the rights that we have had for so many years just continue to diminish, diminish, diminish. And I, I think that one of the things that's important to recognize is that as Interfaith Alliance, we have religious organizations that are on both sides of the choice life divide. We have people that are on both sides of the gun divide. And so we have to work in concert to say, what is the common good that we're doing here? What is the common voice that we can speak with? Because we do represent not just a particular point of view, but it goes across the board in terms of some of the views. So working together to listen and to understand what the other person is saying in order to find the appropriate response is one of the major things that I think Interfaith Alliance of Upstate New York tries to do. Mm. I want to turn to each of you individually because like, it actually is really hard work. What gives you strength, resilience, hope? How do you move forward? Let me start with you, Connie. A couple of things that give me strength and um, keep me going forward are my faith, first of all. And my faith, I was born and raised by two ministers, one who came to that later in life and the other um, in my childhood. And, you know, I grew up in the church. It was my second home. But my version, if you will, of Christianity is that you love one another and you work alongside other folks and that every person has value and and worth. And I was raised that you have to do something when you see an injustice in the world. And so um, I try to live that out to the best of my ability and get to do this. And I'm honored to do this through the work of Interfaith Alliance of Iowa. I will also say that I have two adult children and they're partners. And I do this because of, of them as well. And hoping to create a better world for for them um, as they are in adulthood, early adulthood, and future generations, if that were to happen, of our family. And, and I also do it because I just feel called to do it. Um, I feel called to do this work. And it's hard, as you said, it's hard work. And um, we don't always get it right, um, but we get up the next day and um, try again. Thank you so much. Rabbi, what about you? In some ways, I'm coming from the opposite side of the coin. Um, so my my mother was born in Vienna before World War II, Vienna, Austria. Uh, my grandparents and she, they fled another set of failed democracies. And I'm very much aware that in 1923, the Nazi party staged an insurrection to overthrow the government. It failed. Many leaders were imprisoned, but eventually they were released. And they retained a political party that continued to function in the democratic system, but was committed to undermining the democratic system from within, combined with a set of militia that they had to to intimidate people from the outside. It took them 10 years, 1933, but they did. They succeeded. I don't know how things are going to work out here, but depending on how those Supreme Court cases go, I can see a clear path to minority rule by 2025 in this country if everything lines up in a particular way. By minority rule, you mean? When you have 
basically you you combine the Republican advantage in the Senate because of so many of the small states in the middle of the country being Republican dominated, combined with gerrymandering in the House of Representatives, which makes it wholly Republican, combined with the capture of the courts, which already has been done on the upper level, combined with the Electoral College perhaps being manipulated by state legislatures because of a decision the Supreme Court does perhaps next year, you will have a situation where a minority of voters will be able to elect in a government in a very polarized society, um, which could be highly conservative and very positively oriented towards Christian nationalism. And the, the majority which opposes this will have no, no hands on any levers of power. Yeah, yeah. And that frightens me because if you have a majority of people disenfranchised, what happens? Where do people go? Either they resign or it becomes becomes violent. And don't get the idea that I'm encouraging violence. But uh, I'm I'm not not hearing that. This scenario frightens me. And so I feel I feel no choice. You ask what keeps me going. (laughs) I feel no choice. Yeah, I do believe that optimism is a mitzvah. Mitzvah means commandment, obligation. Optimism is a mitzvah. We must be optimistic. We at least must act optimistically because just think how much worse it will be if we don't. So I'm a pessimistic optimist. (laughs) (laughs) I think, I think that you're, you're speaking for many of us. Uh, and, uh, and I also, you know, I, I don't want to gloss over or quickly move over the kind of Again, it's the kind of existential threat that you're outlining and also the the echoes of, of Nazism and how things land, especially with a lot of Jewish friends of mine. They're hearing a lot of things land in a very particular way because of what has happened in the past many times. I, I just want to recognize what you said and make sure that everybody really heard it and also recognize that I think as a rabbi and, and as someone who's a leader in your community, even though that's all true, you are moving ahead and you are acting and you are the mitzvah of action as well as moving forward in, in hope, or if not optimism. So I just mm-hmm. I wanted to make sure that I that you felt heard about what you just said, because it, it's really important that we hear, especially from voices who feel immediate threat in the in the current situation, which is many Americans. So I, mm-hmm. I just want to acknowledge that. Reverend Paul, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what what is inspiring your action and why did you sign up for this? Well, it, it's interesting. I'll, I'll just write on what the other two uh, folks here have been mentioning. My father was a Scots Presbyterian and my mother was a Sephardic Jew and I was raised an observant Jew and I'm I'm Bullish now since I still you know go to, to go to Kol Nidre service and I still do the uh, Seder <laughs> during Pesach, but I think we have to stop back there and I start with the gratitude, the gratitude to my parents, the gratitude to what they've done for me, and then I look at the gratitude that I have toward the society which nurtured me, and a sense of obligation to pay that back, and I think that that too often. We are so involved in our own 
struggles when certainly we should be because because there's a lot out there to struggle with. But the gratitude for those who have nurtured me is one of the things that I feel is really um, a necessary element. And the recognition that the interconnectedness between people, the person whom I might be having an argument with because of his political structure or whatever, to recognize that that person and I really maybe philosophically, theologically, whatever it may be, have a distinct difference. We have more in common than not. And how do we find within that commonality something to have a constructive conversation about? And I think that those are the things that, that really drive me. And I share the rabbi's perspective growing up Jewish and, and recognizing that sort of persecution uh, which I personally have felt when I was younger, not to want to see that happen to other people and to work to the extent that I can so that we don't continue to replicate that from generation to generation. Yeah. So I think gratitude and the sense of interconnectedness and the desire to bring people into the fold rather than to exploit and and look at them as the other is how I, that's what keeps me going, so to speak. I really appreciate all of the, that, those comments. Um, one thing that I want to end on is, you know, each of you could do this in your own communities. You could, you could decide, I'm just going to work. I'm just going to work with the Christians, which is a perfectly fine thing to do. I mean, Christians have a lot of work to do. Also rabbi, also, also with Buddhists. What part of you just loves working across religious divides. I'll say for me, you know, I, I say I have an interfaith heart because my family is also, um, you know, both Jewish and, and Christian. And I, I feel like I'll, I'll just say one, you know, one, one thing about what you said, Reverend Paul was, you know, just recognizing that we have a, we have a history. And I think of the history of this country of people who have worked across divides to do something great. And, you know, we can look at the civil rights movement to some degree to that and, and far back. And I, but we're also creating history now. And I just think what you all are doing is creating history of an interfaith movement that's really trying to create a future for our nation. So as a last, you know, final word, like why interfaith, why interfaith alliance rather than your own faith? Rabbi, can we start with you? Yes. There's part of me that's really drawn to interfaith work because I want to know how other people see the world. And the more I can understand how other people see the world, the more I can see through other people's eyes, the more I can see. And my own world is expanded. And there's also more understanding and harmony. So it's a win-win. Uh, but it, it it starts really from deep inside of me and a deep curiosity about how people see the world and what am I seeing and what am I not seeing. Thank you. Connie? When we bring people together to the table from different perspectives and different experiences, it enriches the conversation and the outcome is far better than when we stay in our silos. And so I love being able to do interfaith work. We also do 
interconnected work with lots of different organizations, but the interfaith work just enriches the conversations and the outcomes are so much more um, rich and deep and the relationships that are built from that are um, just a treasure to me and to, um, to each other. I just want to interject there. Like, I love the idea of pleasure, like that actually like being with other people who are different, who were working together, that we're learning together. It's pleasurable that this is like a, like, this is something that brings joy. Uh, in addition to seeing that I, I love uh, what Carl said, uh, Paul, uh, what about you? Well, I, I look at the world around us and all of us can recognize that the notion of truth is a fungible notion these days. And when I join together with people from other faith traditions, we share a sense of humility, generosity, service. We share a sense of gratitude, regardless of our philosophical, theological distinctions. We share those things in common. And when we bring those things together, we can do something that we can't do individually. And if the political spectrum and the academic and et cetera, et cetera, if there's such discord and there's a sense of, of morality with a small M, that if we can't get together as religious leaders and bring that sense of morality and that sense of a truth, not a single truth, but a joined truth, then who's going to do it? It's really left up to us at this point. We can't leave it to anybody else. And the interfaith does it best. Buddhism doesn't have a, doesn't have a corner on the truth, certainly. And the wisdom and the compassion that we can gain working together makes it something much more fulfilling than we would otherwise have. That's such an important part of this. It's like, what does it mean? When some people think they have the market on truth, I mean, that that is, a you know, in politics, in religion, that's where, frankly, that's where it gets dangerous. And this is me talking as a Christian. A lot of Christian pastors say, well, of course we have the truth. It's like, well, you know, we have a truth and we have a truth that we proclaim, but it doesn't have to be the truth for everyone. And frankly, it becomes dangerous when we try to insist that it's the truth to everyone else, just as when some people are going to insist that their political truth is going to force others to abide by their truth rather than allow a freedom of religion, freedom of conscience, and freedom of expression, which is what our, our country can be if we allow it to be. But it's, it is going to take all of us. It's going to take everyone listening to this conversation. But we have to, I'm extending a deep gratitude to all three of you for what you do, what you are doing, what you will do. I'm sending you all kinds of uh, strength for the journey and uh, and pleasure and joy and seeing and uh, and possibility. So Connie, Carl, Paul, thank you for being with us here today on State of Leap Radio. Thank you, Paul. Thank you very much, Paul. It was a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Well, I'm afraid that's all the time we have on this week's show. 
What I can guarantee you is the important stories and voices you have heard today are not being shared as widely as they need to across this country. But that's an important part of what State of Belief is all about and a great reason to help us amplify these voices doing the critical work. We would love it if you would offer us a financial contribution to keep this program going strong. Information on how to donate is available at stateofbelief.com. That's stateofbelief.com. There are so many channels today for discouraging, divisive messages that reach each one of us. And yet that can lead to feeling of isolation, hopelessness, or even fear. But great work is being done by committed individuals and organizations coast to coast. Strategies to build alliances and strengthen our democracy, including its promise of true religious freedom for all, are growing and expanding. We're going to keep bringing you those stories. And you can be a part of making sure that those encouraging stories are heard by sharing State of Belief on your social media and with friends and family. Let's get more people listening and more people taking part in these conversations, both on and off the air. Equally important, if you know of someone doing amazing work promoting inclusive religious freedom and protecting democracy in your area, or maybe it's you, please reach out to us. Let us know how we can help, and maybe we'll even have you on the air. Never miss an episode by subscribing to the free weekly State of Belief podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. And join the conversation. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at State of Belief and share State of Belief with the people in your life. State of Belief is produced by Ray Kirstein and is a production of Interfaith Alliance. Become a member today at interfaithalliance.org and be sure to join us next week for more stories from the intersection of religion, government, and politics. I can't wait. Until then, I'm Paul Rauschenbusch and that's the State of Belief. I think it's time we stop, children. What's that sound? Everybody look what's going down.